0: A lot of women, I think, are uh, invested based on performance and men based on promise. And so I know a lot of – I know I saw a lot of male-led companies who were coming out with uh, socks for men, boxers for men, and they were raising millions of dollars before they even had a product. And – I could not get a single um, institutional investor to take me seriously really in the early stages of the business. There was a lot of, you know, I'll have my wife try it on, I'll have my daughter check it out, but, you know, their wife was a stay-at-home mom, so not really my target customer. Their daughter was 18 years old, so again, not my target customer. You know, I think there was just a general, we can't get a gut instinct around this product, and so we can't take a chance on you. Whereas men's boxers, they could get behind because, you know, they wore men's boxers every day. The investor that ultimately came in for that that first institutional round, uh, he was just so unlike any other VC I had met. And, you know, he he was so um, humble. And I think, you know, one of the first things he said to me was, I know nothing about women's workwear. And so teach me, educate me, like tell me everything there is to know about it. And it was just such a different
1: rapport from day one. For most startup founders, they are guided by the advice to never give up. For Sarah LaFleur, the CEO of MM LaFleur, a luxury quality clothing company via a seamless and direct-to-consumer stylist experience that takes the work out of dressing for work. Her own mantra amounts to this, when it scares you, just keep going. Coming up, you'll hear how Sarah transitioned from a finance career to following another calling. Filling a need for high quality business clothing for women with better quality and better experience. The challenging path to raising money. Launching a company at trunk shows. How her business model evolved after a wake up call. How MM LaFleur lives by 10 values every day. How Sarah and her team successfully and positively navigated the departure of a co-founding executive and the launch of a campaign inspired by a fourth grade teacher that features women of political influence and asks the question, what are you made of? This is the Entreprenista podcast presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done and what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram with no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Courtney. Uh, I know you started your career in finance. I actually did too. At that time, where did you see your future self? Um, uh,
0: So yes, I started in management consulting, which honestly, my plan was not to be a management consultant. Um, I thought I wanted to go be an uh, aid worker in a refugee camp. And that's what I had dreamed of doing since I was a little girl. And the summer between my junior and senior year of college, I actually went and worked in a refugee camp in Zambia. And I loved the experience, but it felt, I, I really felt p- quite powerless, I would say. I, I arrived in this camp and, you know, we were there around two months and I thought I was going to have this massive impact and really walked away feeling like I had done very little come back on campus it's senior fall and suddenly i see all of my friends have come back with five thousand to ten thousand dollar signing bonuses which i had no idea what what that was but basically they were checks that you got from these banks and these consulting firms uh to uh join them and just signing a piece of paper meant you ended up with ten thousand dollars in the bank which was the most amount of money i had ever imagined having in the bank and um wow, it's a, I had a really fickle change of heart. You know, I just, I started, um, I started thinking, well, maybe, maybe I should look at this management consulting thing. And uh, I started interviewing and they said, well, if you really want to go work at a refugee camp, then management consulting is the perfect place for you. Um, that was the pitch that I got, which um, I think in retrospect is a little bit of a dubious pitch, but, uh, and so I started interviewing and I think I just kind of ended up in management consulting. It was not never the my ultimately ultimate intention. Um, but looking back, I, I am grateful for that experience because had I not been there, I don't think I would have been able to start this business.
1: Yeah, that's what I always say. My finance background definitely prepared me for for running a business for sure. So where yeah. did you come up with the idea for MM LaFleur?
0: Yes, it was, I mean, very much. From that experience, I think uh, it's funny you said that. You know, you, you, with without your background in finance, you, you don't know if you would have been able to start this. And I, I think the thing that management consulting taught me was well, it was really two things. The first piece of advice that I had gotten from a mentor was that um, uh, you won't regret it. You'll go learn how to play with the big boys. I put big boys in, in air quotes, but. Um, I think what she meant was that you you will learn how to hold your own and not be intimidated by these people who who, on paper, you may be intimidated by. And then I think the other part of management consulting is they often throw you feet first into industries and areas that you have never worked in before. So I became an expert in. Uh, corporate-owned life insurance, which is the kind of life insurance that companies take out on their executives. like Who knew that that was even a thing? But um, you had to get up to speed really fast and become an expert and learn how to talk to these Fortune 500 executives uh, in, in two weeks or less. And so... When it came to starting MM, the biggest inspiration for me really was my mother. I, I Growing up, my mother worked in high-end fashion, and I think through her I got to see and touch these beautiful pieces of clothes that she would bring home. And uh, I used to think to myself, okay, one day when I'm a big girl, I'm going to wear a Chanel suit and also go to work. Um, and I quickly realized with my starting salary in consulting, which was not a bad one, uh, I was not going to get anywhere near a Chanel suit. I was going to be shopping at, you know, kind of your run-of-the-mill contemporary stores at best and spent a lot of money at those places buying clothes that I didn't particularly love. But I had to buy them because that's what was asked of you. And um, I I really started to think, isn't there a way to do this better? Like, how can we get the average woman to wear a Chanel quality suit. And that was really where the idea came from. And so um, when I decided to leave my job, I, at that point I was in private equity. Uh, you know, again, similar to consulting, I went feet first and I said, I, I think there's a way to offer that level of quality clothing to this woman. Let me see if I can figure it out.
1: And what did you do next? Uh, well... It sounds so obvious. You were, so you were at the private equity firm yeah. when you came up with the idea, mm-hmm. and then did you quit your job the next day? What was the, the You know, it was step? a confluence of things.
0: I had the idea for a long time, but it really – I honestly thought it was some sort of um, dream that I would fulfill when I retired. I thought I was going to rise to the top of uh, – you know, at that time, I was at, at this private equity firm, and I was so – uh, I was so eager to just. I was so eager to be powerful, and I just. I saw, I saw incredible power and incredible money in private equity. You know, I got to fly, uh, on a private jet to Paris with one of my managing directors, and I saw them buy and sell companies and open up hotels, and um, I. I I saw if if you know management consulting was learning how to play with the big boys then private equity was kind of seeing the world beyond the big boys the, the actually the people who quote unquote run the world um and it was seductive and uh I I wanted that for myself uh the long story short is I wasn't um I wasn't a great uh, it, it was not the right firm for me. I was one of two women out of a hundred and I think 70 front office professionals. And ultimately I decided, I don't know if I'm going to be that successful here. Um, and I, I felt like I, I, I knew I was a smart person. I knew I could do great things. I just didn't know if that was the right place for me to do it. And so, I, you know, I, I quit pretty much cold turkey. You uh, had nothing else lined up. I did. You just quit. Yes. How long were you there for? Less than less than half a year. I really, I quit. I I kind of knew pretty quickly, and uh, I I made you know the advice that you get is don't leave a job before a year has passed, and don't leave a job without another one lined up. And I kind of broke both of those rules, and. I really did not know, you know, what I was going to do with myself next. I like, sat and wallowed uh, and cried for a good month trying to figure out what it is that I wanted to do. And um, But this idea for creating better workwear for working women, that was always with me and that was always... Something that I dreamed about. And I thought to myself, I was 27 at that point. I had no kids, no mortgage, really like zero responsibilities in the grand scheme of things. So I was like, why not? Why not give it a shot? And and
1: that's how it started. What did you do first? Did you have to go raise money? I know you have co-founders. How did you find them? Yeah, the first thing, the very first thing I did, typical management consultant,
0: uh, was like
1: <laughs> put together plan. a deck. Yeah, exactly. Did I put, together, put together, together a business plan, a business
0: plan that P.S. <laughs> nobody saw. Uh, <laughs> I think that was like one thing coming out of uh, management consulting is that you think you know making slides is the work when really that's like that is nothing at the end of the day. It's it's the work that comes after making the slides. That's the meaningful stuff. Um, but I yeah I made a deck, so the idea was pretty clear in my head. And actually, I would say after that, the first thing I did was I I went to find my my partners my. My co-founders, um, I not having gone to fashion school or not having had a fashion design background, uh, I did, I, I, I had, I hadn't had the first clue about how to make a dress, and you know, really, I think talking to my mother and, and seeing the amazing talent that my mother got to interact with, I thought to myself, like, if I'm going to make luxury designer quality clothing, I better work with a luxury designer. And so I went to several headhunters. Most headhunters laughed in my face. They were like, "Who are you?" I've got Calvin Klein on the other line. Like, please come back to me when you're serious. Uh, but this one headhunter took a chance on me and said, um, "You know, I, I think I think this e-commerce thing is going to be huge." Uh, this was like 2011. Um, let me let me see if I can help you out. And so we so he ended up introducing me to an an amazing uh, collection of designers Uh, and you're probably wondering like why the hell would they want to speak to you? But I mean, this was an interesting time in the economy. We had the financial crisis in 2008. What year was this? This was 2011. So a lot of the, a lot of the fashion houses had either closed or downsized significantly. I think a lot of people were wondering, okay, what's the next wave of fashion? So there was a lot of, there, there were so many great designers uh, looking for their next opportunity. Now Miyako, my creative director, uh, had a job. She was quite happy, but she was one of the people who I got to convince because I think she also saw she didn't she she didn't quite understand where the high end fashion market was going. And when I came to her and said, "Look, there's a whole group of professional women out there. They feel like the clothes that are being offered to them are total crap," and I think we can do something better together. She, I remember her saying to me, wow, I thought everything that needed to be designed in the world had already been designed. I never thought that there would be a gap in the market. Um, and I think that's initially what attracted us to each other. Um, and then my other co-founder was Nuri. Um, she was actually the first person I had ever managed at uh, the consulting firm I was at. And so we, were, we became very close. And I just it, it kind of instantly knew that... Um, She could be an extension of me. So for the first six months, I was doing it by myself. And then Miyako joined. And then another six months uh, passed. And so at that point, I'm a year in. And I'm thinking, okay, how do I really start to scale this business? And I basically, it came to a point where I didn't have enough hours in the day to get things done. And Nari, I knew, I trusted, and we complemented each other in, I think, a a way that I've never really felt with any other business partner. So she came on, and, and it was the three of us.
1: Did you raise money?
0: I started with thirty five thousand of my own money I had saved up i basically I put every single cent that I had saved up into the money into the business, which now I'm like that was insane, but again, you know, back then I was like, you know it was twenty seven like what else was I going to use it for um and uh then my parents let me thirty five thousand so I started with seventy thousand dollars and that was the that was the beginning of the business, and that took me through the first year, so that took me through um Hiring Miyako and paying her a very, very nominal fee, um, launching a very basic website, not even e- an e-commerce site, just a very basic website, um, buying fabric and making samples, and then ultimately coming up with seven, seven samples, seven designs, I should say, that we were really, really proud of. And then we took that to uh, – we hosted our first trunk show at the Soho House, which sounds fancy, but honestly, it was the cheapest suite that we could find in New York City and we invited our friends uh and and colleagues to come and try on these seven dresses and um and that went that was gangbusters um that really was a sign that we had done i think we had made we had made dresses that were truly special uh we we did eight trunk shows all together but you know by the third trunk show we didn't know a single person who was in the room and it was this amazing network effect where we saw you know, if we had one woman come from one, say, law firm, then at the next trunk show, we would see five people from that law firm and we would say, like, how did you hear about us? And she was like, well, I saw Lori wearing it in the water cooler and, you know, here we are. And I think it was a real reminder that fashion magazines weren't the inspiration for these working women. It was each other. They were telling each other where to buy things, what brands they liked. And so we, we really benefited from just tremendous word of mouth. Um, and I think it was after we did those eight trunk shows and we were feeling really confident with the product, that's when we went out and did our first friends of family fundraising, which we raised about $400,000 and is the hardest $400,000 I have ever had to raise. Um, you know, we have since then raised more money and, and institutional money, but – Nothing will ever compare to the...
1: Is this really where your background in private equity came into play? How did you figure out how you to know, value your company at that point?
0: I think um, it It certainly, I think, made investors comfortable that I knew how to talk about the financials of my company. Uh, but I will also say I don't think anybody invested because they thought I had a good business background. And I I tell this to a lot of, I think, other entrepreneurs who are trying to get started is at that friends and family stage, nobody's investing in you. Nobody's investing in your company because of your business idea. Everyone's just investing in you. So either they think you're special and you're going to do something special or you have a pre-existing relationship with them and you have a track record of staying true to your word. Um, or, or you don't. And that really, I think is so much about the friends and family around. Um, and now I, I should also qualify when I say friends and family, it's not like I had a rich uncle who was willing to write a big check. It was uh, a lot of friends of friends of friends. And so one of my biggest supporters and angel investors was my, now husband then boyfriends childhood friends fathers former business partner oh my goodness like just a you know a very very long-winded connection uh and it was it's really one of those times where you have to take every meeting that comes your way because you really mm-hmm. don't know where the
1: next check is coming from. I know that it can be Stephanie and I. Stephanie's my business partner. We've yes. never raised money, but I know just from speaking with other people who have, it's a very time. It's almost a full time job. Oh, totally. Uh, so how long after your four hundred thousand did you have to raise again?
0: Um, well.
1: I like to joke that
0: uh, there's like I am always raising. I uh, raising
1: money. Do you need some money? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) I know
0: exactly. Right? Maybe now not so much, (laughs) but the first four years, I mean, I was I was willing to take a check from anybody who would believe in me enough to write twenty thousand dollars. I think the twenty thousand dollars was our minimum, but that was that was. um, I mean, it was it was my job constantly, and I think I you know you. They they talk about it in this somehow formalized formulaic way where uh, well first you're going to raise your seed round and the seed round is going to be five hundred thousand dollars and you know so and so is going to lead and blah 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 and I I mean another um, entrepreneur friend of mine uh, who's also a woman was saying uh, I think that formulaic version actually only works for the men and most of the female founders I know are collecting twenty thousand dollar checks. Uh, as they go along. And I think there's a, there is actually a, a real element of, um, sexism there. I mean, newsflash sexism in VC, like I'm not saying anything groundbreaking here, but, um, I, I, what I have seen is that, uh, a lot of women I think are, uh, invested based on performance and men based on promise. And so I know a lot of, I know I saw a lot of male-led companies who were coming out with uh, socks for men, boxers for men, and they were raising millions of dollars before they even had a product. And I could not get a single um, institutional investor to take me seriously, really, in the early stages of the business. There was a lot of, you know, I'll have my wife try it on, I'll have my daughter check it out. But, you know, their wife was a stay-at-home mom, so not really my target customer. Their daughter was 18 years old, so again, not my target customer. You know, I think there was just a general, we can't get a gut instinct around this product, and so we can't take a chance on you. Whereas men's boxers, they could get behind because you know they wore men's boxers every day. Right, right. Um, was there
1: a breakthrough moment where you found someone to write that big check and just felt so – so good or the work is never done.
0: Uh, you know so, th- so th- we did you know we did end up raising an institutional round and that actually came about at a time where um, honestly I didn't think we were ever gonna raise from an institutional investor. I would say I probably also had a chip on my shoulder having had the door slammed in my face yeah. so many times and um, we we had a couple well, a lot of VCS can track. Your performance, your revenue, and so we started getting a lot of inbound inquiries and um, and and got a couple of term sheets and uh, that was a total turn of the tables, if you will. You know, we had never experienced that up until then. I was like, oh my god, this is the thing they call a term sheet. <laughs> um, but the the investor that ultimately um, came in for that, that first institutional round, uh, he was just so unlike any other VC I had met and, you know, he he was so, um, humble. And I think, you know, one of the first things he said to me was, I know nothing about women's workwear. And so teach me, educate me, like, tell me everything there is to know about it. And it was just such a different rapport from day one. And so that was, um, you know, that, that really helped And I think, you know, to this day, it really feels like a a partnership more than, um, you know, Mr. Investor, um, a wise one, which is, I think, how
1: uh, sometimes the relationship is portrayed. Coming up, a new campaign and a bubbly surprise. How has the business model changed from day one to what it is now? So...
0: I think in the beginning, we thought that creating high-end designer quality clothing at a fraction of the price would be enough. That would be sufficient. And so, you know, I said earlier, we launched with these trunk shows and, I mean know, dresses were selling like hotcakes. So we were like, wow, we've really landed on something special here. Our products are amazing. We're going to launch our e-commerce site and overnight we're going to become an instant success. And so we launched our e-commerce site January 1st, 2013, and it was crickets. It was (laughs) – we didn't see any of the traction that we had seen when we had done these in-person events. Uh, And that was a real wake-up call for us. And I will say that period went on for – probably a good year where we just, like, could not figure out.
1: I don't remember what year it was, but I can tell you I found out about your company. Yeah, through a Facebook ad. Oh, really? Yes. So I, don't rem- I don't know when you started Facebook advertising, but that's how I discovered the brand.
0: That's Well, okay. Thank you for telling us that and um, <laughs> makes us feel ever so slightly better about the amount of money we spend on Facebook. <laughs> it works. It uh, works. But, uh, yeah, so we um, – it was really – it was so weird to me because – when we could get customers to try it on they would they would buy it, but our dresses you know I like to say that that what we do is we sell boring black dresses. You don't realize how special the boring black dress is until you put it on your body and you appreciate the fabric and the fit and ultimately just how good you look and hopefully how powerful you feel. But it is so hard to tell that story on e-commerce. And, you know, one day I would love to, like, write a – I was going to say a book, but maybe I'll just start with, like, a white paper or something about this, which is I think e-commerce has really put um, – has really devalued quality. And, and what I mean by that is so, you know, our black dresses will run anywhere from 145 to 325 So not super expensive but not cheap and uh online, if you're looking at our black dress and you compare that to another dress that's selling for thirty dollars, honestly, it's hard to tell the difference because in photoshop you can look make make anything look good uh so when you're trying to shop online, it's really hard to tell the difference between a two hundred fifty dollar dress and a thirty dress thirty dollar dress and um that was that was really our Achilles heel. We it, we had we could not get our customers to understand why our dresses were priced the way they were priced. Anyway, to make a very long story short, um, it was in early 2014 when we were sitting in this warehouse that was about a hundred square feet, so half the size of the room. I know your listeners probably can't see it, but um, a small room. And uh, we were looking at our overflowing inventory and we're like, wow, we are going to go out of business unless we find a way to move this inventory. What are we going to do? And we said, "Okay, well, let's – we have about 1,000 customers on our mailing list at that point. Let's just see if we can send our customers a box of dresses and see if they'd be willing to keep anything. And so we – that's what we did. We emailed our customers and we said, hey – Hey Courtney, you know I know you loved the Annie dress um, that you bought uh, at this event. Um, we'd love to send you a box of dresses that we think you'd like. Would you be willing to give it a try? And we had eighteen percent of customers write back to that email saying, "Sure, send me a, send me a box. I've been I've been meaning to order from you for a while. I just haven't had the time, or I wanted to order from you, but I wasn't sure I'd, if I'd be a size eight or a size ten now." And we made more money in that one week than we ever had in any month leading up to that point. And that was a real light bulb moment for us where we were saying, and this is what customers, what customers would say. They would say um, they, they, they just couldn't pull the trigger when they were looking at our stuff online. And after they tried it on, it was so easy to understand, you know, why, why M.M.? And so that was, that was the, the, as they say, the pivot, (laughs) that was the big pivot for us in the company where we're saying, okay, let's, let's actually do all of the work for the customer. Let's not make our customers who are, by the way, they're working women. They're so tired. They get home after a long day of work. A lot of them have kids. They put them to bed. The last thing they want to do is go online and go workwear shopping. Let's do that work for them. Let's just get them to fill out like the very, very basic information about themselves. You know, how tall are you? Yeah, I I took the quiz. You did? Yeah. 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 Okay. So, you know, (laughs) um, and let's do all the work for them. And, you know, I think that's when, so we launched that model officially in October, 2014 and, uh, overnight our revenue tripled and it was, you know, to this day, one of the craziest things we had ever experienced Mm -hmm. as a business because, I think the, the moral of the story there is you know, nothing about our physical product changed. It's the same price, the same dress, the same style, same branding. Um, the only way, the only thing that changed was really how we were introducing our products to first-time customers saying like, we'll pick for you. Don't worry about it. Um, and, and all of our skill as a business has come really from that point forward. So gosh, I started working on this in mid 2011 and that was late 2014 i mean it was like it was three plus years just to get to that point where we were saying like i think there might be i think there might be something here
1: were you scared before that point that this was just not gonna work what was going on in your mind
0: according i am like i'm constantly scared <laughs> i think it's um it's so funny you say that because i just texted my husband last week uh about something, you know, something new we're trying. And I just texted him, I'm so scared. And I read, <laughs> I like looked at my text and I was like, wow, I sound like such a baby. I mean, I'm like a 35-year-old woman saying I am so scared. But I, I feel like I am so scared on a regular basis.
1: I think that's what keeps you competitive in the market. You have to stay innovative. And if yeah. you aren't scared, then you'll probably go out of business because you don't care anymore. Yeah, you're right.
0: <laughs> it's hard, um, you know – I like moment of truth I think that level of anxiety is is constant and it's hard and like I think entrepreneurs are often portrayed in this glorious light you know we think of Mark Zuckerberg on the cover of um Money Magazine and gosh they make it look so sexy
1: CNN and uh, yeah you're right totally uh, and you know what I'm
0: pretty sure he was damn scared about that too um (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a constant, constant battle with fear. Um, but actually this uh woman Stasha, our director of analytics, shared this quote with me, um, actually on International Women's Day, which I thought was very uh on point. And it was an Eleanor Roosevelt quote quote, and it said, Um, you you must do the thing you, you think you cannot do. And uh it it's just really stuck with me because I think it is it is a constant uh constant battle seeing things that you think you cannot do and then trying to do them regardless. What was that text
1: about? What were you scared of?
0: Uh this was um this is interesting. This was a, a particular campaign that we wanted to launch. And um it was uh it was going to be potentially controversial. And um I just did not know Whether to lean into it um, or back out of it.
1: I know you can't share all the details of the upcoming campaign, but what can you share?
0: Yes. So we are launching a campaign, or I should say it will have launched by the time this airs. But we, uh, so we have launched a campaign called uh, What Are You Made Of? And uh, in the first three series, we are featuring three women. Kat Sadler, who was the former anchor of E! E Entertainment news show, who left because of uh, wage inequality. She found out that her co-host was making more than double what she made uh, and wrote a fantastic piece for Vanity Fair about that. Uh, We are also featuring Cecile Richards, uh, the past president of Planned Parenthood, and activist, and uh last but not least, Amy Sherald. Um, she's uh, an incredible painter, really world-renowned painter, uh, also heart transplant recipient, uh, and most well known for the portrait of Michelle Obama. Uh so we are starting with these three women. And um the the concept actually came from so a friend of mine is the uh headmaster of a school in Chicago. And um, he and his wife sent me an exercise that his fourth grade teacher made her students do, um, where it was essentially a series of Mad Libs. And these Mad Libs uh, put together, created some of the most beautiful poems about where these 10-year-old children had come from. And... uh, So then we started thinking like, okay, what would this look like for professional women? And I think when we think of women's careers, uh, it is often anything but a straight line. It's a lot of pivots and turns. And I mean, we were just talking about, you know, how I started MM, like the last place I thought I would ever be is in fashion. And here I am. And and could we somehow reflect that in through these Mad Libs Uh, and and inspire other women? Because I think a, a lot of times we look at these super successful women and we think they had a plan from day one and they climbed the ladder and here they are at the top of the game uh, and I think when, when we asked these women to put together these poems what it really revealed is that their careers have been full of these twists and turns as well uh, and they are so inspiring we're going to release the poems in full um, and you can go to our website um, com uh, slash whatareyoumadeof And hopefully, read these poems. They're also they'll also be running in the New York Times. Um, But they have just been so inspiring, and and we've opened it up to our community as well. So we've got a lot of customers actually writing in with their own mad libs. Definitely, yeah. I would love to read yours. I would love to fill it out. Yeah, it's um, it's. I think it comes from leading a life well examined. You know, and I think there's so many moments in your career where you just have to like reflect and stop and say is this really what i want to be doing um and have i made the right decisions and is it time to make a change and i think so much of that has comes out in the in these mad lips so it's been it's been such a fan, fun campaign to work on and i think really you know goes to the core mission that we believe in which is that the world is a better place when women succeed in the workplace
1: I love that. I love that. Um, And I know you now have your own brick-and-mortar stores, Yes, yes. When did that come to be?
0: Um, So I think we opened our first official store in 2016. But, you know, as we talked about earlier, our first kind of burst of success that we saw was in these trunk shows. And so I think everyone's like, oh, brick-and-mortar's dead. Brick-and-mortar's dead. Who shops in stores anymore? And I think I I never believed that. I always thought there was – tremendous magic in uh shopping in person and um so we've got nine stores in new york dc atlanta boston chicago uh, philly san francisco houston i think i got all of them and um we we there's no merchandise on the floor i should start there so that's what is fundamentally different but uh, between our stores and others and you work one-on-one with a stylist, and a stylist pre-pulls all the items that she thinks will work best for you. And I think uh, being a working woman, I, I I felt like I wasted so much time having to comb through racks mm-hmm. of things that were not right for me or would not work for me. And really, the idea here is let's do all the work for you. Let's only have you try on things that we think will work for you, and let's make this the most efficient hour of your life. And so, you know, we tell our customers we only want to see you max four times a year. Um, Let's get your outfit and like let's get you out of here. Uh, and there's also
1: champagne involved, which uh, which never hurts. Um, Speaking of which, yeah. uh, we actually knew that and we wanted to get you a gift, so we have some oh, prosecco here thank
0: for you. you. So feel much. free to pop it open I'm, now. Wait, or wait, can we seriously? <laughs> Are you ready?
1: I'm always ready. Feel great, we're
0: gonna <laughs> pop it open.
1: Everyone, we'll be right back. We're just going to have a quick drink. Up next, values and a change in company leadership. Plus a brainstorm. A common theme from all of the guests we've interviewed on our podcast so far is that they've all relied on support from other women through groups. So we decided to start an entrepreneista Facebook group. Head on over to Facebook and search entrepreneistas. We really wanted to create a community for entrepreneurs to connect, share ideas, help each other solve problems, and learn from all of our collective experiences. If you join the group, it's really a safe space to talk about being an entrepreneur, sharing your wins, asking for help when needed. It's going to be an exciting 2019, and we can't wait to meet you so we can learn and grow together. Cheers. Okay, cheers. cheers, we, cheers. We're back now, yeah. uh, and we're, we're sipping some uh, Prosecco, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so back to business. Back to business. Tell me about your team and how that's changed over the years.
0: I was going to say, but business is always so much more fun with a drink in hand.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I
0: feel like I'm always like that person with a <laughs> bottle in one hand and a glass in another. Um, yeah, my team is my team is incredible. I think um, I have really been uh, – I don't want to say blessed because that sounds so – that's such a cliche, but – Uh, I think just having spoken to other friends of mine who are entrepreneurs, I have, I've been very lucky in the, in the kinds of people that I have gotten to work with. And um, so we've been really up and running. We just hit our sixth year anniversary. And I think uh, one of the one of the things that naturally starts to happen is is you know the original team of people that you built the company with um, they they either the the role is no longer right for them or the role that existed is no longer there, or maybe they're just tired and they're really they're ready for a new challenge um and I think we've talked a lot about at our company about how we do that because I am. Emotionally, so attached to the people that I started the company with, I think um, I, um, I'm. I'm quoting Goop here, or Gwyneth
1: herself, but you just saw her at South by South. Oh, you did. Yeah. Did you? Yes. So,
0: did you see her New York Times piece about? When- um, it was, it was a, I think, a corner office piece just just this past Sunday, but she was talking about when you first start a company, there are so many feminine char- characteristics. It's intuitive. It's collaborative. Uh, you are uh, working together as mm-hmm. though you were a family. And as your business starts to grow, you need to bring in more masculine traits. And yeah, she did talk about yeah, that. Yeah, right? And so uh, it, it ha- you have to formalize. You have to create systems and processes, and um, it's you have to kind of lose maybe all the things that made you successful initially. And I've, I think I've, I've really, um, when she said that, I was like, yes, yes, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, and I would say, so I have two co-founders, as I said earlier, Miyako, my creative director and Nuri, um, and Nuri decided that she wanted to take some time off about, I want say a year and a half ago, um, and initially, she left to actually help her parents build uh, her their dream retirement home, uh, which was a rotating house. Um, and she is oh. a engineering nerd. And so this was her high school science project. And this opportunity came. And she was like, you know what? I, I really feel like this is something I have to go do. And uh, she's, she wrote about this for our uh, digital magazine, The M-Dash. And so this is all public and out there. Um, uh, and she left. And, you know, uh, some time passed. And... I think there was some conversation about whether, you know, she wanted to come back or not. And I think we, you know, we kind of mutually agreed that this would be the right time for her to try something new. And that was, um, you know, at that point, she had already not been at the business. um, And so function-wise, I didn't think, uh, functionally, I was not worried that things would start to go awry. But just emotionally, I think not having her there hit me way harder than I ever imagined. It wasn't really until, um, you know, she was like, not, uh, at my side that I, I felt this like massive vacuum, not so much because of the, the functions that she oversaw, but really because she was, um, uh, you know, such a, such emotional support to me. Uh, and, it's um, it's interesting, I think, as the company grows, you bring in new people and there's something so beautiful about that too the new energy that they bring. I know everyone says that, but it's really true. They make you see your own business in new eyes and and think about it in ways that you had never thought about before. Um, and experiencing that has also been a wonderful thing. How did you position
1: her departure from the, to the team?
0: You know, she actually, she came and told the team herself. um, What was her role at that point? She, so she was COO and she, uh, and she left, uh, wow, let's see, a year and a half ago now. But she is still, I, I would say like the, the things that she contributed are still very much a part of our culture, and so um, I would say her one of her biggest contributions to the business was um, our values. And so we've got ten values at our company, and uh, we talk about them incessantly. They are, uh, you know, they are on decals on our walls. You see we them as soon too. as you walk in. Yeah, you have that too. Yeah, and and they really are a part of our daily language. And Nari um, was the one who said that she wanted to codify this and put this. Uh, together um, very, very early on in the business when I felt like we were still like barely able to pay rent. And I was like, this does not feel like the right priority right now. Like, why are we spending our time writing our values when um, we just need to sell some damn dresses? But she was absolutely right. And um, so one of our core values actually is this, it's this Japanese word called kizukai. Um, I'm I'm half Japanese. So uh, that's where it comes from. But the rough English translation is empathy and action. Um, So the idea is like, okay, if okay, what's the difference between empathy and action and empathy? It's um, if you see someone walking through the door, and they're looking, they, they look like they're coming in from a really hot summer day, then go and grab them a glass of water don't ask them if they want a glass of water you know that's that's empathy in action and that we really try to emulate in everything we do the way we interact with each other the way we treat our suppliers the way we we treat and work with our customers and you know that was really one of the things that she she codified and she brought to the business so give
1: us an example of of embodying that in the workplace
0: yeah uh it's the simple stuff i think um like If there's a new person who started and she's sitting next to you and it looks like she has no idea how to launch a particular system, like, can you just turn to her and say, hey, can I help you with that? Rather than waiting for her to... Nervously, like, you know, poke you and say, Hey, I'm so sorry to bother
1: you, but blah, 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 blah. I love that. Do you ask questions in the interview about or to assess whether or not someone would embody a value like that?
0: Yeah, we, we, so we do have, so we have 10 values and we, we really say in the interview process, like, make sure they, they meet every single one of these criteria. And so, you know, is it one specific question? No, but I would say we're kind of watching <laughs> we're we're watching a lot, you know, so it, it can be in the smallest things. Like if um, you know, my assistant comes in, um, is she treating your you know, my assistant Heather the same way she would be treating me? Um it's like in the subtle cues, I think, that you you pick up. Uh and I would say I would like to think that that has fundamentally like made our workplace a, a better place. Um, we we don't always get it right. Like I I think we're always learning, and I'm I'm definitely learning as a CEO how to um as 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 Gwyneth would say systematize a lot of yeah. these things. But I think uh, you know Nuri was so fundamental in coming up with the the heart of the company. And uh we really try to preserve that on a day-to-day basis.
1: Switching gears a bit, what is a typical day like in your life?
0: Uh it is there is really no typical day. I will say the one thing I'm pretty adamant about is um not having meetings before 11 AM. And oh, nice, uh try that. Yes, my brain doesn't I,
1: work before that. No, it's it's really
0: <laughs> it's um it is the system that I've I have perfected over the years. Um, My I wake up pretty early. I'm usually up by 630. um, And the time that I get in the morning is when my brain is kind of at its sharpest, if you will. And that is the time that I need to think. And if there is an important project or an important email that I need to send out, then that is the time that I get to do it. And then I get to the office um, by 11. And then from, I would say, 11 to 6, it's basically nonstop meetings. And I rarely have downtime between 11 and 6. And then I get to go home and clean up some items, but I'm usually not doing like hard, hard brain work at that time. And, and this, uh, this has worked best for me. Um, and so, you know, I, I should also add, like, I, I run every morning and that also keeps me sane, you know, going back to the anxiety and the, the feeling of being scared, um, running for me takes, takes, I want I don't, I I can't say it takes away a lot of that, but it, it helps with a lot of that.
1: Where are you running on the West Side Highway? Yeah,
0: I'm always on the <laughs> West. Side, it's West Side Highway or Central Park and that is like one of the benefits of being on the Upper West Side, but um yeah, that that's that's one thing I'm pretty religious about.
1: And what's next for you both in the immediate right after you leave this room and long term?
0: Sure. Um well, we we have gone into we, we really started in business casual, right? So you were talking about being in banking. I was talking about being in management consulting. And I would say that was like a pretty – actually, were you business formal?
1: Yes. You were business yeah. formal.
0: Um, uh, no, no more business casual. Casual, yeah. right. And so like I, I think that has really been our core, uh, core offering. But we had a lot of customers actually from D.C. and Texas, conservative areas, who would say like I can't go to work in a pantsuit. I need a skirt suit because – um, I need a skirt suit and I need pearls and I have to wear stockings. And we're kind of sitting here in New York City thinking like, really? Like, can that possibly be true in this day and age? Um, it turns out it's very true. And I've I actually – my my aunt is a, is a lawyer in um, – she's a public defender in New Jersey. And she says, yeah, I, like, why would I wear something that could possibly hurt my client's chances? And so that was – first of all fascinating for me to to understand and so we went into business formal and then we went into what I'll call like creative casual tech casual Um, And that actually came from a lot of our San Francisco customers, not surprisingly, who were saying to us, uh, "You know, I I work in the tech industry where all the men are wearing hoodies and a sweatshirt. And um, I don't want to wear that. But if I dress up too nicely, then people think I'm interviewing. So what should I be wearing to work? And in some ways, those women were even more perplexed and confused by the dress code than a lot of these women who work in more conservative environments. So we ended up launching our own creative uh, smart casual line which has been really fun and um, really like launching that to Uh, our broader community. That's really what's top of mind for us. Um, And then we went in and we just launched shoes actually, which has been so fun. We worked with a factory in Tuscany um, who they make shoes for the best luxury brands. And basically we went to them and said, you know, we love what you're doing here. It's so beautiful, but it's so uncomfortable and you're going to have to help us make this super comfortable. And so we ended up incorporating a lot of technology that you usually you only use for sneakers. Um, We were, we, We used a technology called pour on really that that's that that's stuff that they use in running shoes. Um, And we put that into our heels um, really to create the most beautiful but comfortable pair of heels that uh, that you could ever imagine. And so um, it's it's really about telling that story and, and getting our customers to give it a try.
1: I love that. I love that. And then something else we like to do on the show is a brainstorm, where yeah. we'll put sixty seconds on the clock, and we can talk about and discuss really anything that you would want to brainstorm. You, you know, can pick my brain, ask me anything. I would love that. Okay, so one. I think one of the most powerful
0: things we have um, in our company is our is our is our customers, and when we do these VIP dinners, and sometimes we do them in our stores, and sometimes we do them in. Uh, at at these fancy restaurants, you know, at one table, we will have the head of investor relations for a major tech company, a congresswoman, um, the head of the physics department for uh, an Ivy League university, um, uh, an analyst at a hedge fund, kind of all sitting at the table, all different ages. So it's not really just, you know, women who have made it and are at the top, but also women who are maybe just getting their career started or are mid-career. And it is the most magical experience. Um and we we ask women this one question, which is tell us about a life-changing moment. And uh you tend to get some of the most revealing stories coming out of this. And and I think my question is like, how can we bring that to a broader audience? You know what, I mean, here you are doing podcasts, which is amazing. Um how can we create more opportunities like that where women are connecting with people outside of their industry, outside of their age group. I don't know. I'd love your, I'd love your thoughts.
1: Yeah. All right. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. Something that you might want to consider is doing just meetups around the city or in major cities where most of your customers are. And that way you can bring in a, a wider or a larger audience and connect with a lot of people. And maybe you can you know pull people aside and ask them that question and and record that that answer and put it up on your social media cha- channels to get people thinking in that way. And then also building the community on your social channels. And then another thing you can do is you can do Instagram stories and Instagram Live, where you can ask your audience that question. Um, You can utilize the Q&A feature on your Instagram stories, where you can ask that question, and then people can submit their answers, and then you can share it. And then you can do kind of like something that we did, surprise and delight your your customers, and just send them something, look at their social channels, send them a gift for something that, you know, they might like or that relates back to whatever their story was, and just make them feel happy and, and better about their day or by partnering with you.
0: Yeah, I love that. Um, I just discovered Instagram stories like three weeks ago.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I saw your post. Oh my god. I saw your post. It so funny. That was good. Um, good
0: post. No, it's was fun. We were a VP of brand marketing. It was like, you need to get your ass on Instagram, so um, yeah, I'm well, on we it could, now. We'll
1: have more drinks another time, and I'll yeah, <laughs> share you. Yeah, you can share need to you educate do. all of
0: that.
1: <laughs> Where can everyone find and follow you? Sure. So...
0: Uh, first things first, you can go to mmlafleur.com and order a bento. So that's what I was talking about earlier. You fill out a really brief survey, tell us a little bit about yourself, and we're going to send you uh, a selection of items that we think will work great for you. Um, You can also visit one of our stores. We've got nine across the country. And uh, if you go to the stores and say that you – heard about us through entreprenista there is a special leather business card case Ooh. Um, that is actually made of highest quality italian leather um you'll you'll love the story we used the leftover leather that we had from making our shoes in um in tuscany and it was it was wonderful leather and we could not bring ourselves to throw it away so we were like how can how can we actually do something with this i mean We ended up making these beautiful business card cases that I use as well. Anyway, so um, if you go to one of our stores and uh, make a purchase, that leather business card case is yours. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Uh, And then last question for you is what does being an entrepreneur mean to you? Um, Well, I'm going to go back to the Eleanor Roosevelt quote and say it is doing the thing that you think you cannot do. I love that. Uh, and thank you so much for joining me. I had so much fun. Thank you And so much. thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week. I'm Courtney, and this is the best business meeting we've ever had. Thanks for listening.